a podcast world. This is Ramon Sanchez. I'm an associate clinical social worker out in California and host of Destigmatize, a roundtable mental health podcast for professionals I know, members of my community, and some of my friends can discuss topics worth destigmatizing. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, I brought three professionals who have a wealth of experience working with children and are willing to answer some of my questions and share their knowledge. My first guest is Mercedes Coral. Mercedes is a therapist trainee, CSU Stanislaw alumnus, and a recent graduate with a Master of Science degree in clinical psychology from California State University, Bakersfield. She's been able to work with a variety of children ages 4 to 17. Mercedes is joining to stigmatize to be able to give back and share her own childhood traumas during this episode. Mercedes hopes to be part of the healing process of children experiencing trauma and finds it to be one of her biggest honors to be invited to be part of their journeys. My next guest is Ryan Adams. Ryan is a proud product of California State University Bakersfield, becoming a Master of Science in Counseling Psychology, all while being a therapist trainee. Ryan is passionate about helping children and their families. By going through his own rough childhood, he's able to provide appropriate therapeutic services, all while being empathetic during his tenure towards his licensure. My final guest is Jason Gifford, a licensed marriage and family therapist, adjunct professor in the Counseling Psychology Program at California State University Bakersfield, clinical supervisor, and co-owner of Flourish Family Wellness Psychological Services Incorporated. Jason agreed to join the Stigmatize to provide his years of experience working with children and adolescents. And now, here's our episode. All right, the Stigmatize episode 10, Children's Mental Health. Welcome, everyone. Hi. All right, so I'm here with Ryan, Mercedes, and Jason. And so... How we know each other is an awesome story. We all got placed together and for clinical supervision. I think you guys know each other more like on a personal level outside of that, right? Yeah, I teach at CSUB, so I know these these two through school. Right. So you guys have been able to go ahead and teach. How, How was that, having your clinical supervisor as a professor? Well, we had him as a professor before he was our clinical supervisor. It was our first semester. The DSM class. And here's the trick, right? You get to teach at CSUB, and then you pick all the best students to come work for you. (laughs) So that's how I I got these two. Oh, man, you're giving away all your secrets. Awesome. That's great. That's great to hear. So tell us a little bit about you, Mercedes. What, What brought you on to this episode and, you know, the reason as to why you, you know, why you're so passionate about working with children. So I've been working with kids for just a little bit now, maybe like, what, two months, I think. Um, But I went to CSUB. I still am going there. And I worked a little bit briefly with the kids. But at my previous placement at the homeless adult team, I was able to work with that trauma. And so what I noticed is the root was the childhood. And so that's where I wanted to decide to work with children and start there so that we don't end up to the extreme over here right so uh, for you it was important to go ahead and kind of address the the issues while you're a child to prevent them from developing any sort of behavioral uh, symptoms and beha- uh, you know just behaviors overall as a, w- within their adulthood yes awesome that's cool and and you get you and Ryan are, are really modest they're they're still saying that they're students when, by the time that this releases they're actually going to be graduates from CSU Bakersfield. So congratulations on that. Hey, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> That's so awesome. How do you guys feel? How, how you know, what, what do you guys expect out of graduation? I'm excited to just finish. <laughs> I've been in school for a very long time. I've taken no breaks. So this is my time to just wow. 
enjoy and absorb everything and learn more at the county and just take a vacation. (laughs) That's awesome. What about you, Ryan? Yeah, I'm just ready to get going. Like, um, you know, I probably wouldn't even walk if my uh, my family didn't want me to. I just want to get the diploma and get out so I can start working. <laughs> that's awesome. And that, see, that's that's crazy, right? Because we've been doing this for quite a bit of time, and it's like, oh, man, I wish I was back in school. Yeah, because it's interesting. That's a really sort of fun part, fun part of your life where you get to don't have to focus so much on the practical, like bureaucratic part of the mental health, but focus on more of the learning aspect and the like the theory portion, which really excites me. Right. Absolutely. And and the, and all of these individuals that are here on this table, they're they're actually they're super beyond competent to be able to have this discussion. Like if I didn't know them outside of clinical supervision, I'd be like, man, these guys are smart. They know exactly what they're talking about. Ryan, what about you? What, what got you interested in working with children? Oh, man, probably uh, my personal childhood went through some stuff. And, you know, it really only took one individual for me to um, get through it all. And so that really has kind of directed my career goals of uh, wanting to work with children, wanting to help them out so they don't feel alone and they have a support system. Absolutely. So you've been able to work with both children and adults as well as Mercedes. You know, what's you know, what's the difference, you know, being able to go ahead and go from working with adults to children? I think once they're already adults, some of the patterns are already um, set and it may be harder to change what they're going through to to help them out. Um, And so I feel when working with children, there's a greater ability to impact change so that they can be healthier as adults. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. All right, Master Yoda, we're we're here with you. Um, And... What got you into working with children? You've been working with children for quite a bit of time, right? Yeah, for the last 10 years at least. Um, It's funny because I didn't ever really want to work with kids, um, but I just kind of fell into it. After graduating from CSU Fullerton in 2010, um, if anyone remembers, 2008 was not a good time in the economy and not a lot of therapists were getting hired down in Orange County where I graduated from. So I moved back to Bakersfield like everyone else does. Right. And I just took the first job that came along, which was um, with the transition age youth team at the county and working with them and working with uh, the younger kids. I really found that it was a, a really interesting time in people's lives and a really sort of rich time to, to help people change. And since then, I just kind of loved working with the children population. Gotcha. Yeah. So and just full disclosure, I've never worked with children. And that's been both a personal and, and like a professional choice. Right. Like that's that's kind of the same thing that that's happened to Jason. I've been put with adults, but I also prefer working with adults. So all the questions that I'm going to be asking uh, you have actually been presented to me by parents. So I, I definitely want to and I, I worded it in a sense that where we could go ahead and kind of get clinical as well as personal. Right. So as we get started, you know, I, I definitely want to go ahead and know again, just even from you, Mercedes, what is the difference between working with children and adults? Because you've worked with both. Um, I think like something what Ryan was saying that it is different, you know, some people are set in their way. So it is a little bit more difficult to break those patterns and those relationship, you know, that relational um, patterns. But with kids, they're a little bit more moldable. I'm able to kind of interrupt it a little bit more easy, like easier. And I'm able to communicate with the parents. So then their environment changes. But sometimes with the adults, their environment is already set. And then at the end of the day, maybe their family members aren't going to change and they're not as willing because they're adults. 
That's what I've noticed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think seeing that, you know, working with adults, that's, that seems to be true. I know that at times I've been, I've had the privilege and honor to work with both the family and the client. With adults, that's a lot harder to do, but I've been able to go ahead and do that. And some of the things that I've come to terms with or come to understand is that a lot of the families, they'll teach their children certain certain behaviors and certain actions. And it's like, okay, well, I'm not the problem. It's the child's problem. The child has the behavior problems. You need to go ahead and work with the child. And it's so difficult to go ahead and change the family dynamic. What, what do you say towards that, Jason? It's kind of like what Mercedes is talking about. When working with adults, if an adult's in a crummy situation, they can just leave, right? Go, go get a new group of friends, go live with other people. But if your kids are really unique because they're sort of born into their parents' dynamic, right? And so and they're in a situation where they can't escape. And oftentimes the parents' sort of unconscious fantasies or biases really shape how the child develops. And so working with the kid is not just like, hey, kid, let's work on some things that you can do to change, but you have to work with the entire environment, reshaping how the parents see the kids and their expectations for what, what they want the kid to be and how they want them to act. Gotcha. In my last episode, my guest and I discussed suicide. And this was a very interesting concept and question to go ahead and introduce onto this episode and, and into the previous episode. And again, just to remind everyone, these questions came from parents. So the fact that a parent asked me about how to ask about suicide and, and just a little backstory. Recently in the past couple of weeks, you know, my heart and condolences go out to the family of, of uh, a survivor of their, who are survivors of suicide to, of a 10-year-old child. Um, and that I'm sure that that's nothing easy, you know, and there's these, you know, taboos that exist that children have nothing to worry about. They, they, they have no reason to want to commit suicide or die by suicide. I apologize. I, I'm curious to know with the three of you working directly with children, how young is too young to have a conversation about suicide? Gosh, I, I think that's like the, the fundamental existential question that children have to, we grow up to deal with, right? Is it life or death? Um, and it's funny because I, I think what you're, Ramon, you're exactly right. People have this perception of kids that think like, oh, they're, they're living in this carefree world. There's nothing for them to worry about. But if you think about like your own childhood, it's just rife with anxieties, right? You're, you're tied to two people that without their existence, um, you don't survive. And so you have to worry about their opinion of you. Like, am I making my mom and dad happy? If they're not happy, what does that, does that mean they still love me? If they don't love me, how can I even exist, right? And you're so tied to the social world um, that those thoughts, at least from my experience working with kids, are pretty common, right? Is it better to be alive or to be dead? And I think with the prevalence of suicide in our society, um, that's a good starting off point to, to just introduce that topic to kids and then just straight up ask them, right? Um, are you feeling bad? Do you have thoughts about killing yourself? Because uh, I think oftentimes it's the parent's anxiety that gets in the way of that a lot more than the kid's own anxiety. Yeah, it's an uncomfortable question. What are your thoughts, Ryan? To directly kind of answer about what age, I think it's more of a question of principle. So as soon as it's necessary, and so I think, um, in my experience, the youngest I've talked about it, probably with the children around 10 years old, but if you're already seeing the child start to exhibit some signs that 
they might have some self-harm behaviors or they seem to be very uh, critical on themselves where it may be indicated that they might do something, then that time would be uh, appropriate to talk with them about it. Mercedes, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the youngest that I've talked to is four. Um, And it's something that I think is important that we have to do, especially with situations of very intense trauma, sexual abuse, things like that, because it does impact the way they view themselves, their identity, and what is that anxiety, where does that go? And that's important that the parents start talking to them about it. We talk to them about it. Um, I think it just depends when they start showing signs. When I see that they're showing signs of self-harm, then I will address it in a way that is kid-friendly, right? Right. So so what, you know, going, you know, not to put you on that spot, and again, anyone is free to answer this question, but how would you give, how would you recommend that a parent ask their child? Because again, we're trained professionals. We're able to go ahead and sit through hours and hours of being able to ask, you know, of just uncomfortably ask someone, are you thinking about suicide? But parents, they don't have that, you know, they don't have that training. How, how do you talk to parents? Or, you know, and this goes to everyone. I think that you can get away with a lot of things as long as you are caring, curious, and come without judgment, right? Because like I said before, I think a lot of the difficulty with talking about suicide comes from the parent's own anxiety, right? What if I ask and they are suicidal? Then what does that mean about me as a parent? What do I do in that situation? So sometimes I see parents just avoid that question because they would just rather not deal with whatever comes up because of it. Um, But I think if you just go with those principles, starting off with like, I'm asking this because I care about you. And because I care about you, I want you to be alive. So, you know, are you thinking about dying? Or do you wish that you weren't alive? What can we do to help with that? Um, Can go a long way. Got you. Any any input? Any additional ways to go about it? Yeah, I would uh, echo the same thing uh, Jason said, because there's definitely a difference from a parent asking a child like, hey, are you feeling suicidal today compared to coming with care and compassion and I think working with parents to go about how to approach it. And then if the client is feeling suicidal, how to help them can go a long way to ease the anxiety. Gotcha. Yeah, because in that sense, right, you're, you are asking directly, but you're, you're approaching it in a way that is, as Mercedes said, said kid friendly. You know, compared to as adults, like I straight up have to ask them like, hey, are you thinking, are you considering suicide? Are you thinking about dying? Um, and it's very direct because it's a very, you know, uh, intimate uh, situation and moment where it's like there's no messing around with it versus with the child. There's there's some time to go ahead and get them to to go ahead and come to terms and, and understanding of that decision. But yeah, absolutely. Now I'm going to go ahead and flip the script. Has there ever been a time where you've talked to a child about suicide, about asking them about suicide, but the parents gotten upset because you introduced the concept um, to, to that child? Heck yeah. We, I mean, that happens all the time. The parents will maybe backing <laughs> up a little bit. So we're, we do this protocol called Zero Suicide with the idea that um, with every service we give, uh, we're supposed to ask someone if they're suicidal or not. When we first introduced that, parents were not happy about it. Because a lot of parents come with the idea that talking about suicide will lead to suicide. Like we're putting that idea in their mind. Like planting the seed. Exactly. So if we didn't introduce this, the, the kid would never have thought about suicide before. But we know that that's just not the case, right? That the idea is if, if we can ask them if they're suicidal, if they are, we can get help. If we're not asking about them, about suicide, the kid's sitting with those feelings without being able to get help. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it's one of those things where we have to educate parents. This is why we're doing it in order to help the kid. And if they are suicidal, there's things that we can do from that point going forward to get them the help they need. Because I think one of the things with with parents especially is uh, part of the fear about asking about suicide is that if they say yes, then what happens? What happens next? And so one of the things we do with parents is coach them. If your kid does say that they're feeling suicidal, here are the steps to take. So they're not just thrown into this abyss of anxiety like, okay, now they're suicidal. I don't know what to do. This is a total crisis. Because it's easy for us to say because we deal with suicide all the time. We know exactly the steps to take. We can create a safety plan, get you know trusted people involved with them. Um, you know, hospitalize them if necessary. But we also have to realize parents don't always have that training. Or actually, parents don't have that training. They don't. And they so we're the pe- yeah, and so we're the people that are supposed to train them. So as long as we can help the parents with the next step, we find it a really easy for parents to start asking those questions in a kind and caring way, saying, if they say yes, I know what to do. Right. What about you, Ryan? Any any examples of parents snapping at you for, for talking about suicide with my mijo or mija? Um, I've had parents snap at me for other reasons, but I have not come across that yet. Um, but I think one thing that really helps me if I were to come across this situation is just remembering how anxious I felt when I first started in the field three years ago about asking um, clients questions about suicide. So just coming from that framework of, okay, that was my experience. That's probably how some of these parents feel and to help ease their anxiety by kind of going over what Jason said. Yeah. What about you, Mercedes? I have not got a parent that snapped at me yet. I'm sure I will. Um, But one thing I would say is that when I do introduce that, I let the parent know what I'm going to be doing. So I will let them know like, hey, is it okay if I talk about this? This is questions that I have to ask. Um, What do you think about this? Are you, what what are your thoughts? And so most of the time so far, you're like, yeah, go ahead. Nothing's off limits. Yeah, so that you establish the boundaries and framework ahead of time before asking the child a question just to go ahead and give them like, hey, this is going to happen. Um, how do you feel about it? And kind of work with the parent as well. From yeah, what it sounds like. it's important, I think, to build that rapport with the parent because these are topics sometimes they don't know about or um, they don't want somebody else teaching their kids something that they feel like they should be showing them. So. I think it's important that to build that rapport and just kind of roll with it. Yeah. So what's the difference between a clinician asking a child suicide versus a parent asking for suicide? Is there a difference? I guess like we're trained differently, right? But I mean, the way I approach it with a kid, I am very, I watch my tone. I try not to do it so clinical because I feel like they won't answer me in an honest way. So it's very gentle my tone's very um even and not so strict yeah so like have you ever had to ask a family member that like outside of the the clinical world no i have not like my own personal family or yeah yeah, um no i haven't but i've had friends Gotcha. And so that's, it's, it gets a little bit more sticky because, you know, you care about, not that you don't care about your clients, but it's a different kind of level of care and connection, right? Yeah, because you see these individuals on a daily basis, you know, that you actually interact with them, or not on a daily basis, but you'll, you'll interact with your friends more often than what you would with your, uh, with your clients. So, right. Yeah. right. So, I mean, something for me, at least, it's when I start seeing those signs, I'll start pointing out like, hey, I'm noticing this, this, and that. How are you doing? 
and if and that gives them the opportunity to tell me how they're doing um and I'm like okay like how can we kind of work and so it gets a little bit therapeutic because sometimes it has to be but not all the time but try to make it more personal for sure yeah, what about you, Ryan? Like, what's uh, what are your thoughts with regards towards the differences between a parent asking their child and a clinician asking the child? Is there any difference? I definitely think there can be because when the parent asks, there's a lot of different dynamics at play. There's a lot of history. We don't know how the parents have um, treated the their their child before. If there's been a history of like kindness and compassion, or if that history is more of like guilt and criticism, and that can really um, change the way the the client is going to react to their parents. Um, as clinicians, you know, we're trained to just be empathetic and, and non judgmental. So there might be a, a better opportunity for the clients to express how they really feel as compared to when speaking to their, their parents. Yeah. And, and we're talking a lot about parents in this episode, right? Because the parents actually go, it goes hand in hand talking about children's mental health. The parents have to be involved in it because we wouldn't be able to go ahead and do any sort of services. You know, there are some legal, um, you know, uh, exceptions towards that. But ultimately, we have to have the parents and the family's consent. Um, but you know, we, we're, we're talking about, you know, the differences between a parent asking and, and you, you mentioned something that was very, you know, impactful for me, you know, guilt. Should the parents feel guilty about, about, you know, their children having suicidal thoughts? Whether they feel it. I know that's, that's a, that's a very interesting question because, depending on the the child's answer, they're, they're going to feel a, a number of ways, depending if they want to feel that way or not. Um, I think it's a, because as a parent, I think that's a difficult question to answer because if uh, my son were ever feeling suicidal, I think I would feel guilty regardless if like uh, I impacted um, him feeling suicidal or not. Gotcha. Yeah. What about you, Jason? What are your thoughts? No, and I think that's a really interesting question, Ramon, because I, it, it, it brings up this idea that how autonomous are kids or are they just a product of sort of this psychological drama that the parents have created, the psychological environment that the parents have created for them. Gosh, and I think Ryan's absolutely right. It's, you know, if, if a kid is feeling suicidal and I want to say this without blaming, but it has to do with the environment that they're created and the expectations that are placed on them, um, sort of the avenues that are, are open to them by the parents I wouldn't want the parents to feel guilty because it's almost like that, that idea of like free will versus determinism, right? Do the, are the parents agents themselves or were they just created from their own parental, their own parents' history? Um, but I think it, it, it at least has something to do with uh, sort of the data that it gives us, right? If a kid's suicidal, what does that ultimately mean? Is it, are they saying that in order to create some sort of, some sort of reaction or, or chain within their relationship with their parents. Like, Hey, I'm saying I'm suicidal. This means, but what I'm really saying is, Hey, come save me. Come show me that you love me. Or is there deeper things that are going on with, with the suicide? I know when we work with kids who are suicidal, um, clinicians will often get into the, like the fantasy about suicide, right? Ones that are a little bit more skilled are able to say, okay, you're feeling suicidal. Tell me about that. How would you want to die? What would people think about that? Right? Because oftentimes it's not just the act about suicide. It's about the context that happens. Do they want to be remembered by their peers? Do they want to, um, 
make a big splash? What is it ultimately that they're trying to accomplish with the suicidal thought? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Let's let's transition into talking about other mental health stra- um, struggles. One of which, one of the questions that I was that I have is: Is mental health genetic? Is that something that you know comes with birth? Oh my gosh! So I. <laughs> I want to say no, and here's where my own personal prejudice comes into play, right? I want to say that we're all, um, and I guess this is in direct contrast to what I just said, right? That we're all autonomous beings. We have to, we are able to make our own choice. But if you really start looking at people and their family history, you're like, wow, this is, why are there so similarities here? I know if one of the things that we do in class is create a genogram, right? Look at all the mental, the mental health history that you have versus your parents versus your grandparents. And shocking that it all seems to fall in line, right? that these generational patterns seem to play out each time or, and not surprisingly, the opposite generational patterns play out. So it's almost like we're beholden to our parents, whether we act in accordance with them or just reject them and act in the opposite way. But are we really free if we're just rejecting, doing the exact opposite of what we were expected to do? So I think there is something to be said about this idea of temperament playing into, um, playing into mental health issues but then the question is, is that because we're creating the same environments which are leading to the mental health situation, or is it the, a genetic component? Um, so that one, I, for a long answer for I don't know. Okay. Gotcha. What about, what about you two? Uh, for me, it, it comes down to the nature versus nurture question, and I think it's a, a bit of both because I ascribe to the biopsychosocial model of um, development. And so I think some people may be genetically predisposed to developing um, mental health disorders, but it also comes down to the individual psychology of the person. Um, It's been studied that some people are just more resilient than others. And then also within the the social context that we're living in, have they been born into like a low SES status where mental health issues are more prevalent or were they born into a more affluent society? And so it's a, it's a very complex question. So a little bit of everything. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. And yeah, the, the socioeconomic status, uh, it, it definitely does play a factor, right? Whether the type of help that you are able to get also kind of correlates with that. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, Mercedes? Um, so I, I think there's a couple things, you know, um, I like to read a lot. So I, I don't know if you all have heard about the book. Um, it didn't start with you. No, it's a very good book. I'm in the middle of it. So I'm in the part where they talk about how it could, trauma can begin when you're in the womb and how those um, hormones are getting pumped to the baby. And so when they're out, they start experiencing those similar behaviors like mom does, right? Because we're getting all our nutrition from mom. And so like if the birth is traumatic, it could affect them, right? So that's stuff that I've been reading about. And so... I do think that it could be a genetic component. I mean, I haven't done my own research, but I do read a lot about those things. And I do think that, like Jason said, the genogram, right? So it's like, oh, depression runs in your family. How come? Could be environmental too, obviously. You know, I think that the environment and it's very important to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the, and the reason why I asked this question, again, this is, this is a, an important question that I feel like most parents ca- uh, have, especially since these questions actually came from parents. Um, but for me, I, I think, you know, in, in my subjective opinion, I don't think it's 
absolutely fully genetic, but I, but as Mercedes says, there's the environmental factors, right? Because it, again, for me, it's one of the things that I have in conversations a lot is that when you look at generations before us, so like for the generations that I know, like my grandmother and my, you know, my parents, with them, it was like there was all sorts of trauma and environmental stressors that were happening to survive. So the analogy that I like, that I like to give is that my parents love to work to survive, not to enjoy. And we work to we work and we do what we enjoy doing, and we get paid to do what we enjoy doing. Versus like our parents, like my parents, they don't know how to take a fucking vacation, like at all. There's no there's no way that they'll take a vacation, um, and they just feel overwhelmed whenever they do take a vacation. Um, and I think that comes from you know the the environmental stressors of, you know, their past traumas, um, you know, versus our generation. It's like we're able to go ahead and overcome the depression that, you know, is something that's pretty common within my lineage of both my, my paternal and maternal um, side of the family. And I was able to, to overcome that by being able to do something that I'm passionate about doing, you know, such as this. No, but that's an interesting, interesting thing you point out, Ramon. And I wonder how you've been able to break out of that, um, like never been able to take a, a vacation sort of mindset. Yeah, no, for me, it's um, <laughs> loving to travel and enjoying the food. And but yeah, I, for me, it's um, on top of the, you know, those those fun things that come with vacationing. It's the reality of knowing that everything that my parents have done has been to make my life easier because they've told me that day in, day out uh, as a child. But they took, I feel like my parents did a really weird job at showing me that we want you to enjoy life because they never actually did it themselves. So now it's like, okay, well, but I'm able to go ahead and break that cycle compared to, you know, the previous generations before me, which again, they, there was no television, there was no, you know, Pokemon, there was no whatever, you know, whatever existed in our, in our childhood that, you know, they, they didn't, they had to work at at six years old versus, you know, uh, you know, versus myself. And I don't know about you guys, you know, I started working at like 14 and maybe some, you know, there's people that are able to not have to work as the generations evolve. Um, so there's that. When it comes down to secondary traumas with working with children as clinicians, do you guys deal with that? What do you mean by secondary traumas? In the sense that you are able to go ahead and empathize with, with what they're saying because you may have lived it yourself. So are we thinking about like this idea of vicarious trauma that we're working, working with kids um, will traumatize the clinician? Yeah. Um, I can talk a little bit about that. I mean, I think at least for me now that it's kind of new, you know, it's like, okay, I wanted to work with kids, right? Um, obviously sometimes I think that I went into it too, to kind of, solve my own things sometimes, right? So that's what I'm seeing that I also am solving my own things through it. There is some times where I feel like, okay, like maybe I'm being too protective of my client because they didn't have that. And so what does that mean about me, right? So those are things that I have to explore. Um, but yes, I do catch myself sometimes saying like, okay, what would I do? But it's not the same person, right? So it's like we have to explore what the client wants. So just keeping myself in check, and I talk to Jason about it sometimes too. So that helps. You know, for me, I think just going through difficult things, it can, uh, my own personal things, it can provide uh, a basis for empathy of what the, the client is going through. 
But if it's ever really difficult stuff that the client's talking about and I notice that it's impacting me more than um, usual or I seem to be thinking about it a lot or it's just um, harder to deal with, I think that's why it's really important for clinicians to receive their own therapy, to, to work out their own dynamics of maybe, you know, why is it sitting so much with you? Yeah, absolutely. My gosh, but Ramon, I know you can kind of, I know you have experience with this because it makes me think of my, my work with kids who have um, been perpetrators of sexual abuse against other children. And so I used to run this program where part of it was you had to come to terms with what you did, meaning you had to tell the story and it had to line up with what the police report was. And oftentimes, you know, in order to protect our own ego, we'll say, oh, it wasn't like that, you know the other person we were just playing around they wanted it too and you're like why then why does it say that you forcibly sodomize this person let's let's revisit it so i i don't know what i think about that but that's what what the program said to do and so it's almost like you just have to have a complete split between your personal life and your work life like i'm here to do work and to listen to the story and figure out what were the psychological factors that led this child to take these actions and as soon as it's over, be like, all right, I'm just going to put that in a box and not not worry about it, not dwell on it. Because if you really think about it, the, the world's a pretty bad place sometimes, right? Yeah. And to, to constantly be faced with those things um, is a hard thing to carry. Yeah. And, I, and again, for all of you, again, I'm, I'm the only one on the table that's not a parent. I mean, that, like, how do you guys listen to all this stuff and, and not take this home and not, you know, do you guys like go home every now and then and just listen, have a hard day at work and then just go and want to hug your kid just because of the, of what you heard that day? Luckily, because I don't work with the people, the actual clients themselves as much. I'm sort of immune from that. I have all the other therapists do all the sort of the heavy lifting. So it's a lot easier on this part, but it's funny that you say that because the people that I used to work with the, in the juvenile sex offender program, um, I would talk to them like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? She's like, oh, I'm going to be out with my kids. Oh, what are you doing with your kids? I'm going to take them to the park. But, uh, you know, I don't like them messing around or being around over like five feet away from me because there's all sorts of bad people out there. And on the one hand, you're like, yeah, you're right, because we deal with them all the time. And on the other hand, you're like, wow, that's really restrictive. I don't you have to take that risk. Let your kid go go do stuff, experience the world, even if bad things might happen. All right. What about you guys? Yeah, I I definitely go home and uh, and hug my son. That, that that definitely makes me feel better sometimes. Um, yeah, I I think working with children and and their families, um, I think it's also made me a a, a better parent because I'm able to come home and if I'm ever in like a like a negative state, I'm able to kind of check at that at the door because I remind myself like how much of myself impacts my son. All right. What about you, Mercedes? Um, I think it really helps me to be a better mom because then I'm like, okay, like I see certain dynamics that may not be working. And sometimes as parents, we don't realize how we're impacting our kids. So it kind of shows us a little bit. It gives me a different view. And I'm like, okay, so am I doing similar behaviors? Or, But it makes me really grateful that he's happy and he runs up to me and he's just like, let's play, even though I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Talking about, you know, children, what are, what are some like common day struggles or, you know, what, what do these families come to you guys to, to address? What are, you know, what are some common things that you work with these families as a therapist? I think for me, what I've seen clinically is a lot of um, parents are blaming cell phones. 
And when I talk to the teens and children about what's going on, they say, well, I use my cell phone as an escape because my parents don't hear me. They don't understand me. They don't want to spend time with me. And so for me, it's been working through that dynamics that it's not necessarily the phone. It's more what it says about the state of the relationship between um, the parents and their child. I don't know. I still kind of blame TikTok, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TikTok be lit, though. Yeah. <laughs> so what about you, Jason? What were, you know, you, you mentioned that you don't really deal with working with clients too much anymore as a supervisor, but, but what, what were some like common things they used to work at? You know, most of the people that would come in, um, deal with the common issues are like defiance and children's anxiety. Um, and like with defiance, it's, it's how to help the parents sort of just effectively parent. And we know that like rules, structure, being consistent, those things are all, all really well, work really well with helping kids, um, do what's expected of them. But you know what's really hard about that? For parents to be not anxious, be consistent, and be firm. Like, and we see this all the time. Like when we, when we go to the store, someone's throwing a tantrum in the middle of the store because they want something. And how do we get the kid to be quiet? They get what they want. And so they just learn like, oh, throwing a tantrum works, right? So the same stuff at home. So it's, I know it's hard to be a parent to be able to weather those storms and have the kids act the way that you want to. Um, but if you're not doing that, it just causes a whole whole host of problems, right? So, so most of the work that we do with the parents is like, hey, how, how can we help you be an effective parent? And how can we help manage your own emotions and anxiety so it's not transmitted to the kids? Right. So what you're saying is that you, you work with the families to, to understand classical conditioning. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so for those that don't understand what classical conditioning is, think about a dog and training a dog. Again, this is such a horrible <laughs> comparison, right? But, but it actually kind of works in, the, in this example, right? So when you train a dog... And you get and you give them a treat. What starts happening is that the dog starts salivating, right? So that's so then. But when you ring a bell, the dog won't salivate. He's just going to be like, okay, well, there's this weird bell. It's not going. It doesn't do the same effect. Then you ring the bell and you give them the treat at the same time. At some point, you ring the bell. The dog's going to salivate just as a treat, and that's going. And that's the same thing that happens as parents, in a sense, right? The kid starts crying. He know that child will know that you are going to start that you're going to give him exactly what he wants because of the fact that he rang the bell, and he's he's going to get a treat at the end of the day, right? And what's much more effective is after you have a successful grocery trip, then you give the kid the treat, right? Because then he knows, oh, I'm gonna if I'm good at the store, then I know I'm going to get something. I'm going to get my reward, right? But you're right. It works on dogs. It works on kids. It works on spouses. It's just, it's effective with everyone. Absolutely. Right? Well, yeah. It works on parents too, apparently, with yeah. the, you know, on this example. Yeah. Every time yeah. they come in, we give the parents a treat. Oh, good job coming to your session. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Ryan and Mercedes are going to do this with their little ones. Right? Oh, of course. Um, we know classical and operant conditioning works. So why not? <laughs> I think it's so dangerous to give certain people uh, degrees like ourselves. Oh man, like myself. Oh man, they shouldn't have given me that degree. They shouldn't have trained. They shouldn't have trained me on this. But going outside of that, what are some other common things uh, that that you guys address? Um, as an answer, Mercedes. Um, I guess like for me. One thing that I've seen so far is like the defiance portion, right? Like, why are they acting like this? Fix them, right? I get those phone calls like, I need you to work on this and I need you to fix this. And I'm like, "Mm, it doesn't work like that, right? So, um, and also I get a lot of sexual trauma and then the depression that leads, that is part of that, right? And like 
what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. So, so how do you, how do you talk to families that, um, that are victims of sexual trauma? Um, patience is key. (laughs) You know, I kind of talk to, I am that support person for the parents as well, because it's a pretty heavy topic. So I think something that I normally do is build that rapport and I let them know, like, this is going to be a process. And that person that you once knew that was super innocent, right? That it's going to be a new person. The new identity is going to come with this. And these are some of the behaviors, right? So we're here to kind of work with it. Right. So let's say I, you know, I, I come in and I just, you know, so you, you'll tell me that, you know, there's this patience, but what I do in the meantime, you know, how do I, how do I get over this, you know, this understanding, this truth that, that came out because my child just told me, Hey, like I, I was assaulted by a family member, a friend, you know, a, a random stranger. Like how, how do you, how do you comfort me in this situation? As a parent? Yeah. Um, I, I let them call me and they'll vent and they'll tell me what they really think, right? So I want them to do that. I want them to have that time to kind of say what they need to say and not as much in front of the child, right? Because some of the things are that they're thinking or feeling may impact the child even more and feel that guilt and shame of, if I didn't say anything, none of this would be happening and my family wouldn't be falling apart. So it's important to make sure that the parent does have that time with phone call or face-to-face, right? Having that time to kind of just vent about what they're thinking and feeling like they are validated or, yeah, like they are doing everything that they can at this time and being supportive. So really praising them for the behaviors that they are doing for the child. Yeah. So a lot of these uh, these affirm- these affirmations are, are critical for, for the parents and, you know, for them to hear, but also for them to go ahead and let the child know that things are going to be okay. Yeah, there's a lot of guilt on both ends is what I notice with the parents of like, how did I not know? How did I not see this? How did da 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 da, right? So it's important to let them know like it's nobody's fault. It's not the child's fault and it's not your fault. And like, how can we work together to kind of move forward, which is difficult and it's a long process. Right, because there's so much wrapped up in there, right? Because you have the, like the physical thing that happened to the child. Then you have the parents' reactions, which sometimes the the trauma doesn't emerge until the kids hit different developmental milestones. So the kids might feel like, yeah, this happened. What's the big deal? Why is my parent freaking out? Now I feel bad because my parent's freaking out. Um, so it's like, how do we manage the, the anxiety within the environment for the child? And then how do we prepare the child for something that they might experience in the future? Right. Uh, we know all sorts of cases where kids get molested and then the problems don't start happening until they hit puberty. And then sex becomes something something of interest, right? And then they start thinking back, well, did I already have sex? And then recontextualizing it when they start learning about sex, this happened to me, what does this mean about me, right? And then you add in the layer on top of this, and I've heard this from so many people who've experienced this, that it, it may have felt, it doesn't, it may have felt not bad at the time, but then once you learn about what, what happened and what, how you're supposed to feel about it, then the shame and all the guilt comes in. So how do we manage our like, bodily reactions in the moment to that, plus our parents' anxiety, plus what it means to, about me as a person, as a sexual being, once I start developing? Right. And parents that are listening to this, this is a SparkNotes version of what, we're, of what we actually do. You know, this, is, this comes with time and a lot of various modalities. So please don't, you know, try to go in with, with your child and try to go ahead and unwrap all this trauma. No, please consult with a professional. Please consult with a therapist. Reach out to 
whatever your insurance is, et cetera. No, and that's such a good point because we we see parents all the time that are so so caring but also so anxious because they say, they see this happened to my kid, please fix them right away. And like what you're saying, it's we can work on that, but it's going to be a long process. And so just asking the asking the parents like trust in your provider, stay in communication with them, that's the best thing that can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Any any uh anything else on that, Ryan? Um, I think they cover the basis is really well. Just, um, you know, when when children go through that type of sexual trauma, they can start to have a lot of um, negative uh, beliefs and a lot of different emotions that come up. And especially if it happens when they're younger and they become older and they kind of realize like what sex is and what actually occurred and, and the beliefs they have about themselves. So, it is a. It can be a long process to work through those emotions and kind of work through um, some of those cognitions where they may blame their se- blame themselves uh, for what happened. Absolutely. Let's go into ADHD. Oh shit! Are we going to go there? Right. Ooh, I mean, it, does it exist? That's that's the question. Yeah. Is ADHD a myth? Is it a taboo? Is it like talk to me about this, guys? Because because I you know again we and and I'm, I'll, I'll go into my piece but but what are you guys' thoughts on this oh my gosh i have a lot of thoughts you all go first though um i'm not a big fan of that diagnosis and the reason why is because i do notice that there's similar traits of trauma responses and so i've seen where people have been given that adhd medication but weren't thoroughly assessed and then it turns out to be like it's some relational parental distress going on in the household that's preventing them from really being able to focus or lack of sleep, things like that. But I mean, what's the root of it, right? So more looking at that root rather than the behaviors, because that's what I see like, okay, you fit this, you can't sit in your chair. You're not focusing, but why aren't they focusing? Why can't they sit in their chair? What's really going on? Gotcha. I mean, let's be honest, a little bit of amphetamines makes everyone perform a lot better, right? And so by giving the kids with ADHD, here's some Adderall or here's some Ritalin. Um, oh my gosh, they, they pay attention in school. They're, they're, so much, um, they're, they're so much better. It's like, yeah, if I take that too, I feel better. Yeah. Ryan? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a difficult conversation to have with parents because some, some parents come in wanting medication right away. And I think um, it's important to explore what Mercedes said, like, okay, are there underlying factors that are like contributing to this? Have they gone through some stuff that needs to be processed and worked through? Um, On the other hand, I've also worked with children where they really are just kind of bouncing off the walls. They're all over the place. And once they get started on medication, they're a lot calmer. They're um, easier to talk to. Um, I say that because before I had that experience, I was, I don't want to say anti-medication, but I I was a little more apprehensive. And then I saw how a client can be once they're on it. And I was like, okay, wow, they really did improve. Yeah. I think, and and that goes into what I was going to say, right? I think we're all apprehensive of medication, especially when we come out of school, you know, we're, we're able to go ahead and learn all of these things. And, and yeah, there's, there's some truth to that. And and I think Mercedes hit it right on the nail that there are some stuff that is more trauma based and needs to be explored 
with that said, there may be some chemical disbalances with, with certain individuals. And the diagnosis exists, exists because of the fact that there are, you know, there's a vast part of the population that does deal with ADHD symptoms. Now, ADHD, I feel like that's one of the more common misdiagnosed um, diagnoses or, you know, the common misdiagnosis is within the DSM-5 um, because it's super easy because it's exactly as Mercedes said, there's, there's this checklist. There's, you know, if you don't, if you meet this criteria and, and you're not able to go ahead and function in life appropriately, then you automatically fit into, you know, into this category, which is not the case. Yeah. And I, I think you, you say something really interesting about uh, function in life appropriately. And I think it has a lot to do with what our expectations are for kids um, so if you have a kid that's not able to sit down in a classroom for multiple hours at a time, focus on reading, do all what, um, what sort of this child management view of what kids should be able to do, then all of a sudden that they're, they're sick and need medication. Um, it makes me think of my dad, right? He, uh, you could say, like with the classical presentation, you could say he has ADHD, right? Can't sit down, uh, didn't finish college, um, so he worked in a manual trade, like super smart, able to do that. He just doesn't like sitting down, right? And, I, and it makes me wonder, what are we, di- are we pathologizing these kids that would perform, that would excel if we just didn't have such a like classroom desk-based system of education? If they're out there in the field running around doing physical learning, would they be a lot more successful? Or are we telling them, like, hey, take this pill and sit down and do things this way because we think it's the best. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I don't think that children aren't meant to be sitting down for eight hours a day. I think that that's something that, again, exactly as you said, you know, we're, we're kind of given that societal expectation as to how children are supposed to go ahead and perform within the educational system. Shit, there's no, I don't know how the fuck I passed, you know, like... Everyone, and, and again, outside of me being brown, outside of me being in a, in a rural community, I wasn't supposed to make it in life. And one of those reasons was because I couldn't sit down. But again, I, there was no way that I would go ahead and get diagnosed with ADHD because, my fam- again, in my family, mental health doesn't exist or didn't exist. Now, it's, it's a little bit that's something that's been more talked about. And again, kind of going back to exactly what we said, it's, the, it's a change in environment, being able to go ahead and introduce new, um, new information, et cetera. Right? But, I mean... Going back to the whole ADHD stuff, is that something, so ADHD, that's something that essentially may be genetically inherited or not? That's a good question. I, that, I don't know. It's, because like if we think about my dad versus me, I was, my dad couldn't, can't sit down for anything, but I'm able to like sit down, read, study. Um, I don't know if it's just because of, you know, maybe I got that other half of the genetic pool from my mom or, or what it is. But, but we do see so many, so many people that bring in their kids. We see their, their kid bouncing off the walls. And then we look at, like, tell me about dad. And dad's described as, as the same exact way. Mm-hmm. So I think that may, may play into it. Yeah. Do you all have siblings? Yes. <laughs> and, and I ask this question because my sibling, my brother, his brain works completely different. I think he's like one of the smartest one out of all of us except he doesn't have any formal education. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And he is, man, he's, my gosh. His, I just think his brain works different compared to ours. I think that somehow I was able to go ahead and skate by through, you know, bachelor's and graduate school. But he, for the life of him, cannot sit down and read a damn book. But when he does research about something that he's completely interested in, he will dive into the internet and just completely destroy the internet into that, main, into that subject. You know, and that's right. I find that the people that do... 
would be diagnosed with ADHD have sort of that, um, I don't want to say like obsessive tendencies, which just helps them learn so much about a topic and get so deep into it because when they're hyper-focused on, when they're able to focus on something, that's um, they're able to just to dive into it versus someone who's able just to sit down and sort of do what other people tell them to do. Yeah. What about your guys' siblings? Do, do you guys relate to the story about my sibling or what, what do you guys think? You know, is that, is that something common? I think so. I, I have a couple brothers, but uh, one of my brothers is uh, sounds almost similar to yours. Um, not really pursuing school, but is so smart. And if he really wants to learn about a topic, he'll do it. But just the whole like structure of school and being told kind of what to study and what to learn, it, it just doesn't really work for him. Gotcha. Mercedes? Um, I have one brother. So we're about three and a half years apart. You both bookworms? No. So he is so smart, like naturally smart. And I had to work for it. Like, I mean, to the point, I repeated first grade. So I worked hard to get here, right? But right. for him, it's just so easy. He never had to study, you know? So definitely growing up, I was so jealous about that. Oh, I hate those people. When they go to, when, <laughs> yeah, especially during undergraduate school, they, would, they wouldn't show up except for the test and they would just pass. Oh, He's gosh. one of those, right? Oh, yeah, so. one of those. But he did try to pursue college and it didn't work out. And now he's going to go back because he realized like life is hard, right? Without a degree, sometimes it is difficult. Like, do you want to, because my dad does um, manual labor. Right. So it's like, my dad's like, do you want to work where I work? Or do you want to go to school? Right. And my brother's like, no. So, but he can do it. He has the ability. He's always, was always bored in school. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's that's super cool of him. Hopefully, he's he's able to go ahead and complete it and uh, ensure his degree attainment. And if he goes to CSUB, tell him to reach out to Delta Zeta Tau. Shout out. But let's uh, let's talk about um, the possibility of having multiple disorders as a child. So, is it possible to have trauma, ADHD, bipolar, depression, autism, all at the same time, or you know, pick and choose, mix and match, whatever you want to go ahead and do? Is that even a possibility? And again, the, all these questions came from parents. If you want to talk to our psychiatrist, they want to say yes, because that's because uh, then they can treat each one individually with medication. Right. But mostly when we when we see one overarching diagnosis explains everything else. Right. If someone has trauma, uh, it also oftentimes explains like their ADHD issues, their anxiety issues, things like that. Or if someone has autism, um, it explains why they're having like intermittent explosions, um, why they have so much anxiety, why they're defiant. So I think conceptualizing kids based on sort of a, a bigger picture, what's really going on in their life can help explain a lot more. And then it also helps with treatment, right? Because we're focusing on treating the, the underlying issue that's causing all the other issues in their life versus just sort of piecing things out and saying, oh, this kid has anxiety. Let's get them into an anxiety management program. And they have anger. Let's teach them anger management skills. When if we just address the trauma, we could solve all of that. Right. What are you guys' thoughts? Um, I follow a, a similar suit. The only thing I could think of that would be beneficial for having multiple diagnoses is if it overall helped with the client's care or if it was needed for like insurance reimbursement um, for the families to receive care. Other than that, um, you know, when I work with with children, I, I definitely try to see like, okay, maybe you have all these different depression, anxiety, um, anger, all this stuff going on, but What's underneath it all? What's what's at the root of it? Yes, um, I think pretty much the same. You know, I 
usually what I look at when I'm doing an ass- assessment, I look at all those behaviors, right? And like, what does it really mean? Like, what is the big picture of it? And then I'm able to kind of go with treatment of, okay, I need to work on this behavior. I need to work on that lack of concentration and they're, fid- they're being fidgety. Okay. So that's, so usually in those kind of times I do like, let's say, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And then I'm like, okay, so that lack of concentration, the sleep disturbance, the fidgety in school, the defiance goes back to that diagnosis. Right. Does a diagnosis define who the person is? I don't think so. Um, And at least when I was working with adult clients, I was pretty explicit about that um, because diagnosis can be seen as uh, pathologizing and it can um, really uh, hurt someone's self-esteem depending on how they view their diagnosis. So uh, at least when I was working with adult clients, for the most part, I would let them know like, hey, this is just the common language we use between clinicians to help um, provide treatment. And we're not really, we're not making a comment of saying like who you are as a person. That's funny. Yeah. Being on the, on the diagnosing side, um, cause we think about mental health, kind of like how we think about medicine, right? Like, oh, we're, I'm going to go to this expert. He's going to tell me exactly what's wrong with me. But then being on the diagnosing side, we're like, oh shoot, this is my best guess. We'll just roll with this until we figure something else out. Right. It's so not precise. Um, but on the other hand, like when we're doing the treatment, it's a lot easier, right? Because regardless of what the, someone's diagnosis may be, we know what the fundamental things that we're going to be treating them, right? Whether they're, it's this feeling of emptiness or depression or whether it's this anxiety. That independent of what diagnosis is, we would be treating the, the things the same whether they have a diagnosis that may be close to each other, right? Someone that's going to get the same treatment if they have, you know, generalized anxiety disorder versus... Um, like an unspecified anxiety disorder diagnosis. Right. Yeah, for me, I, what, I, what I like to tell individuals is that, uh, and again, this is the easiest way for me to explain it, a diagnosis doesn't define you, but it's just a way that if I quit tomorrow, if someone else comes and picks up your, your caseload, they're going to be able to understand what we were working on based off of that diagnosis. And it's also a way for us to go ahead and build insurance. Outside of that, it doesn't really mean crap. Mm-hmm. because exactly what Jason said. It's just, it's a roll of the dice at this point. You know, based off of what you said, this is what we're going to be able to go, this is what's the most treatable, or this is what it kind of most correlates to. But yeah, I don't think a, di- a diagnosis defines you. What do you think, Mercedes? Oh, definitely not. I think it helps more <laughs> us, you know, um, to better treat them than the actual client. I, I'm not one to really share it unless they want to know it because I don't want them to identify with it. You know, um, it's not something that is going to be helpful. I don't think in a sense, sometimes the parents want to know like what's wrong with them, what's wrong with them. And it's at the end of the day, it's more behaviors that we need to work on, not so much the diagnosis itself. Gotcha. Cool. What if the parents are in the opposite corners of the child's diagnosis. I'm not sure what that question means. Want to take a stab at it? Like they disagree with the diagnoses or they're... I guess so. Oh, you know, I had that experience a lot of the times. And I, well, not not a lot, but maybe I'll share one. So, so a kid came in with, um, that got referred by school. And school was saying, this kid's not sitting down in class, not doing his work. Um, and I had two parents in the room with me, one that was adamant that this kid has ADHD, they need to be on medication, one that says, this is just how boys act, right? Because this is how I acted. 
So it's like, how do I mediate that? And it more goes into this idea about what does this kid's behavior ultimately mean within the context of the family, right? It's this idea of diagnosis is for the mother one way to explain what's going on with the kid to sort of externalize the reason why the kid's acting bad, right? If, if it's a diagnosis, this means that we're still good parents. There's nothing wrong with us. We can, and it also means that it can be fixed, right? With dad, it meant that um, giving this diagnosis would label this kid as something, there's something wrong with him, meaning that, uh, and what does that mean about his genetics? And ultimately, because the dad was acting like this kid, what did that mean about the dad himself? Right. So how do we navigate these different meanings about diagnoses um, within the context of the kid's behavior? Right. Whether the kid had ADHD or not probably wasn't even important to this issue. It's like, how do we work with the school to, for, to help manage this kid's sort of natural sort of just presentation? And how can we build on what the kid can do well versus saying, hey, let's, uh, let's put you in a seat and force you to do this? Yeah, any thoughts? Um, I haven't had the that happen to me yet. Um, I can imagine I would just try to work with the parent to explore what the diagnosis means to the parent and kind of address their concerns of um, you know why it, it's difficult for them to understand that their children might be diagnosed this way, and then probably just to empower the the parent, letting them know that if they want um, like a secondary assess, assessment or a secondary opinion, you know, that's, that's in the realm of possibilities as well. Right. That's well within their rights. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so that kind of sounds like it, that's the easiest way to go ahead and explain to the parents or the older generations what that diagnosis means. Cause like in a sense, right. Like, especially within the Hispanic culture, the, we have all the, all these cheese muscles that want to go ahead and know everything that's happening. So cheese muscles are like these gossip Kings and Queens, right? So like, uh, like grandparents, for example, how do you explain that? Um, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that cultural aspect Mercedes where you're able to go ahead and explain to the older generations, especially like in a cultural aspect that all oh, my child got diagnosed with trauma, with PTSD, um, at such a young age, you know, how do you, how do you help <laughs> these older folks understand this um it's definitely me kind of feeling it out right so i view it sometimes like my family right like how would i talk to them because there's some ways that you can't talk to them because they might run out the door or they will not listen to you because you disrespected them right so it's kind of not taking that authority figure like you're in charge it's like hey i'm going to explain something to you i mean for me at least like i had a person that came in and was convinced the child had ADHD and I'm like this is not it and it turns out that I was seeing that it was fitting all those aspects right but I'm like no there's something off and then it turned out to be something completely else and trauma related right so kind of explaining it to them like in a sense like hey you know this happened and so when things like this happens kind of educating them not putting the child into it but putting giving them a different perspective. This is what happens with children that do experience this and not putting like, this is your child. This is your fault. This is what happened. Right. Right. Cause that's, that's pretty common within our culture, right? It's, it's your fault that your child is like this, mm-hmm. especially from the generation before the parents. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And, and the recommendation uh, for that generation is always to go to the, the botanica and be able to get some medication. So the botanica is a, uh, it's just like a Mexican uh, pharmacy in a sense, that gives out amazing teas and and other natural herbal medications. I was like, your kid has ADHD, chew on this coca leaf. He'll feel better. 
exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, the botanica is life. Talking about uh, eating, I, I, there's a couple of questions, and then we'll segue into one of our last segments. Um, talking about nutrition when it comes down to mental health, uh, does nutrition play a major factor in managing one, managing and treating one's mental health? I would say it does. Um, we think about like some of the treatments for like depression. We can go. Are you sleeping well are you eating well are you getting regular exercise so i think um, that's a lot to say about how what we're putting into our bodies affects our mental health i mean ryan's so right about this when because i used to work at our children's outpatient clinic for five years and almost all the kids that would come in i would say you're not mentally ill you just need to get some exercise go to sleep at a regular time uh eat well and have friends or activities that that bring you joy, right? Instead of, because we get kids that come in that it's like, yeah, no wonder you're, you're depressed. You don't do anything all day. You're overweight. You feel bad. Your body feels bad, right? And so most of the times I would just want to say, hey, let's get, get you on a regimen that gets you healthy, physically healthy. And a lot of the mental sort of situation would just clear up on its own. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. Definitely. Like for example, you know, um, I definitely wouldn't recommend the coffee, the amount of coffee I drink with somebody that does have like severe anxiety, right? It wouldn't help. It'd probably be shaky, right? You make yourself sound like you have like some sort of caffeine abuse disorder. I I don't. I'm just a mom. So, um, but things like that, like I wouldn't recommend that, right? Because it's like, okay, you're already jittery. This is just going to add to it more. It's like, are you eating breakfast, you know, and you don't have energy the first three periods of school? That would make a lot of sense. You're not putting any nutrition inside your body. Right. Is there an absolute yes or no, yes and no food when it comes down to children that have some sort of disorder? Whether it's a depression disorder, an anxiety disorder, or like you said, Jason, what if they're overweight? Gosh, that's a... I mean, I don't want to overstep my my credentialing. I'm not a medical doctor, but I... I would say the the common thing that I find for the kids that are doing really well, um, sort of in the mental health field, is that they're like they don't eat a lot of fast food. They eat healthy, like natural foods, and they get a lot of exercise. Um, that plus having parents that love them seem to be such a big hedge against any sort of depression, anxiety, whatever. That if we could just get all kids on that regimen, things would be a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, I would echo the the same sentiments. Um, I don't think there's a, a really a hard or fast rule of what to eat or what not to eat. But generally, if you're eating healthier more than you're eating junk food, you're probably doing all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends, right? Like on each child, everybody's different. So it's just kind of knowing your child, right? Like if they're eating a lot of chips and you notice like they get, they're just going to sit on the couch all day. Like, you know, it's just learning your child. Right. Um, I am curious now that we, now that we started to bring up the topic about overweight, what if a child is overweight? What if they're, you know, six, seven, eight years old and they're, they experience overweight, you know, whether it be a, um, a, a coping mechanism for them, their eating that helps them deal with whatever they're dealing with, or whether it's just a biological a factor where they're just big boned and, and they have to eat more than usual. You know, what do we tell those parents? I mean, that's hard because you bring up the fact, and I think this is so important, that oftentimes food, food's a really effective coping mechanism, right? You, you eat, you feel better. Um, 
and it can even go into the fact that you you overeat and it, it serves some sort of purpose for you. Um, how I, I think one thing that we really want to tell parents is trying to figure out what what the function of the eating is. Right? Is it something that's compensating for something else? Is the kid feeling bad and using the food to to feel better? Um, if we can figure out what the origin of that is, I think then it goes a long way into figuring out what our next steps want to be. How does a child explore that, though? How does a child, un, you know, because for, for me, one of the interventions they do is scan your body. How do you feel if, you know, if you explore your body, you know, and you get to your stomach, like, what is it that you feel there, you know, and does it create anxiety? Does it create, you know, and that's the way that I do it with adults. But how do you do that with children? With kids, and this is part of the, the real joy of working with kids, is that kids still have that, a ton of imagination, are willing to engage in play. So oftentimes you just bring out your toys, bring out your figurines, and just play with them. Because they will recreate whatever's going on in their life. Right? Whether it's, and you'd be surprised how often you just bring out nondescript figurines, and all of a sudden the kids are, the kid uh, stages a scene where mom and dad are fighting, or dad's hitting mom. Or, um, or, or whatever it is. And you're like, oh, wow, this is exactly what's going on in the home, right? And then you're able to use that creativity and sort of have them play out like what they would like to have happen, um, you know, different scenarios. And it's a really interesting way of getting at the kid's psyche without them having to do the normal talk therapy that, the, that we do with adults. Right. Yeah. Any, anything on that? Yeah, use of uh, play therapy is really helpful for for children. Um, Once they reach the point of uh, teens or adolescence, you can have more of those direct conversations with them of, you know, hey, do you notice anything when you're eating? Are you noticing it's, uh, are you trying to maybe numb some emotions or run away from them? Kind of what's the gratification of, of when you do eat? Um, I think for me, like I've experienced more of those that under eat. And so um, I think it's what I've noticed is when they do talk about it, it's more of that sense of control and their image, right? So it's them trying to better be that person that they want to be. And I think like with overeating, it can go different routes, right? Like it can make them feel better, right? So it just depends because everyone's so different and, you know, each behavior works differently for each person and has a different purpose. So I wouldn't be able to say like specifically what it is, but you know, it's, it's just different for everybody. Absolutely. What are some resources that you could go ahead and give to families when it comes down to their depression or anxiety of a child? That's a hard one. Well, I mean, not a hard one, because there's so much out there for parents to to access, then the the difficult part is trying to filter what's real and what's not. I know the, oh, guys, help me out with this. It's like the National Institute of Mental Health um, has a lot of really good resources that are practical resources that talk about, like some of the things we've been saying, like how to get your kids to eat healthy, have exercise, limiting their screen time. Um, but then also giving resources about where parents can, what parents can do to take the next steps if these things, if are being accomplished, but they're still seeing that their kid is struggling in an area. The other thing is that there's tons of child serving agencies within the kid's life already. Like you have, um, like the school is a big one. The school is equipped with tons of social workers, people focused on social emotional learning. Um, anyone, if you just make a request, they'll have people to, to help guide you that will either be able to help you at the school or point you in the direction of someone that can help out that may need more help than the school provides. Cool. 
I use therapist net. I don't know if children, if there's uh, stuff for like children in there. I've recommended uh, therapist aid to uh, parents, families. Uh, typically, though, when I do that, I'll see like, hey, does anything stand out? Does anything interest you? And then once they um, identify something, we'll talk about it in session, whether it's an issue regarding anxiety, depression, ADHD, what have you. And then we can talk about the relevant information or kind of the worksheets that went with it. Yeah. Any other resources that we could think of? I mean, I agree. Like, the school's a great resource to get you connected with the people that you need to see, right? Um, but also, like, Google is not your friend, <laughs> I would say. That's not your friend. Um, another thing I would say, I went recently to Below Five, and they have great books there for children about, like, breathing techniques, anger management, all those things, right? So, for me, at least, it was beneficial to look at those worksheets and seeing like, okay, like this is how I can interact with a child better in their language. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Google is not your friend. That's definitely for sure. Um, I know that for me, I I like to go at, for me, I'm I'm a workbook guy. Uh, But again, this is for adults. So if you're a parent, I would recommend uh, just checking out Amazon and exploring that to see if there's any workbooks that exist for depression for children. Just literally add that to your search bar. Um, and again, this is not a commercial for anyone, but uh, I'm just kind of, I'm just trying to think some for some resources on the top of my head. Um, but yeah, is there a right age for kids to get tested for mental illness? Because the parent that provided me these questions said that the age of seven is the best time to get tested for mental health. And by tested, do you mean assessed? Yeah. Right. Okay. But I'm going with the question, okay. but but let's 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 talk about that. What's the difference between testing and assessments? Well, I think the assessment is a bit different, right? We're trying to get all these symptoms and behaviors and seeing how we can better um, help the client, right? And like testing, I think about like psych testing. Right. That's more, that's more outside of the course and scope of our practice as therapists. Right. That goes into the psychologist realm. So that's not something that I, you know, really. Right. We don't So I'm that. like diagnosis wise or assessment wise, I think like it's as early as needed. Right. So my youngest is four and they are showing behaviors that are needed. And so I think it is important. I think that it doesn't really matter the age. Right. Like we can kind of make it kid friendly. So. I mean, if they're verbal, it's easy for us. And if they're not, we can pick up on those behaviors as well. Right. Yeah. And for me and this parent, she'll be listening and love this person very, very much. But there's no, again, the reason why I did this podcast is to destigmatize mental health. There is no appropriate age. So please talk to your kids or, you know, at, at any point in time. There's nothing wrong with talking about your feelings. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would echo the the same statements that both of you have made. It's uh, more of a question of when do we think it's necessary? Are you noticing any like emotional or behavioral concerns? And it's really, the age is irrelevant at that point. It's just when you think they need help. Yeah. Jason? No, and and I think your, your question brings up something else about if there's a problem in the household, like you can work on that without any sort of formal diagnosis or any sort of blaming of one party sort of being the cause of that, right? If there's a problem in the household, talk to a therapist. They can figure out what's going on, um, even without a a formal diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. What about siblings? Is it important to have siblings uh, assessed if one has a mental uh, disorder behaviors that present 
uh, in the household. That's interesting because it, if we say, because I, I want to say whatever's going on with one sibling is probably created within the context of the other sibling being in that same environment. So we wouldn't necessarily want to say, oh, we need both people assessed, but whatever treatment is going on with the person that's identified as having an issue, we would want to incorporate the other, the other sibling in there, right? So we definitely want everyone that's important in the child's life in, but not necessarily saying, you know, one person has a diagnosis, so let's see if the other person has a diagnosis too. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary, but if we're working with one sibling and we recognize that the issues are created because of different family dynamics uh, going on, then we might recommend family therapy to bring in, you know, mom, dad, brother, sister, what have you to work on what's going on. Right. So both of them don't necessarily need to be open for care, but we could invite the entire family for a family session. Yeah. Because something that's really interesting about that is oftentimes the siblings play off off against each other based on the context of the family, right? So oftentimes you'll have one kid that acts up to serve a purpose in the family. So the other kid um, specifically like will, um, what's the word I'm looking for, internalize a lot of the feelings so they don't have, don't have the same presentation as the sibling. So the family dysfunction can be seen as a reaction just to the, the bad kid, right? Where the other kid may be struggling just as much, but they don't show it outwardly because that's not how the family functions. Gotcha. And oh, Sorry, go ahead, Mercedes. Um, I would say it's not necessary, right? So with children, I like to do family therapy. It gives me an idea of what's going on in the household and what each person's role is. And then if I see some behaviors that I I see, maybe like the child's isolating the other one, right? So it's like talking to the parent to make sure that the attention is also given to that child. But if there's extreme behaviors, then it may be necessary, right? Like they need their own individual. But if it's something that could be fixed in the household within the family unit, then we can just do that all together. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess my, my two cents on that is whatever ensures our job security and just make it happen. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Send everyone for an assessment. You all probably need family therapy and individual therapy. No, uh, just to echo what everyone has said. Uh, the reality is that our, our ultimate goal is to ensure the least restrictive um, avenue uh, and road in that sense. Right. So for us, it's let's go ahead and if there's that one child, then Let's assess the let's assess the family dynamic and then kind of go from there. Um, it's it's on a by need basis. Um, I guess the final question that I have, and then I'll just go ahead and open it up for final comments, um, is how do you identify mental health symptoms and behaviors in children when these children are under ten years old as a parent? Um. I mean, it depends, right? Like, I think that if there is severe trauma, you can start seeing a shift in your child's, like, personality and behaviors, right? But if it's slowly happening, I think it is a little bit difficult, right, to kind of pay attention, like, oh, are they isolating? Or are they um, not acting the same? Or if you don't know what's going on, it's kind of hard to see that, and sometimes it is missed, right? So, I mean... There's no easy answer to that. Yeah, but I think you bring up something important about just having an idea of a, of a baseline and then is your child different than that, right? Or has your child changed since, um, since either an event happened or are they just presenting a lot different than their peers do? Um, I think, but I tell parents, anytime you're worried, just go get your kid checked out. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, it never hurts to bring your kid in. Um, but yeah, I would say the similar to the same things. Have you noticed a, a drastic shift in your child's behavior? Um, sure, there are some kids who are just temperamentally shy, but have you noticed a, a decrease in the children's um, uh, friendships, uh, grades declining, lack of social relationships? They seem to be isolating a lot more. So just different things to look out for. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else that I've missed? Because we've we've covered it quite a bit of few things in here, right? What are some, anything else that you guys want to talk about that wasn't covered? I don't know. I think maybe just one thing is oftentimes we hear when you do take your kid in for treatment, and I hear this from kid, from parents of uh, like kids that go to preschool, like, what'd you do all day? Oh, we just played. Because you'll hear the same thing from when you, when you ask your kid, hey, what'd you do in therapy today? Oh, we just played. And sometimes people think, oh, that's not real treatment. They're just going and, and, and doing something non-therapeutic. But I think that is at the essence of, of getting kids to open up, getting inside their world. Um, you really have to meet them where they are. And with kids' developmental, developmental level, oftentimes playing is the best way to unlock that whatever is going on in their head and allow them to express it in a way that's really appropriate for their age and developmental level. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Ryan? Um, I think working with uh, children and their families, I think one thing that really resonates with me is like, sure, we may be able to provide um, coping skills at some times that will help immediate situations, but typically things aren't a quick fix. Uh, I, I see therapy as more of a longer term process to to work out um, different issues that the family or the client present with. And Typically for good treatment, that, that takes time. Um, ideally, we'd want to help the, the families as soon as possible, but sometimes that's just not a, a realistic expectation. Yeah. One thing that Jason said um, kind of made me laugh about the plane, right? His parents are like, what are you doing, right? So one thing I like to do is I, I tell the parents, like, what I'm doing with your child has a purpose, right? So... Sometimes I, I like to pick their brains a little bit, the children, to see, like, what do they like to do? What are some of their favorite things to do? And then I will do it with them so that we build that rapport so we can get to that point. But it is a slow process. You know, I have to build that trust. They don't know me. So, like, patience is very important, right? So it's like we're building that trust. They're showing me who they are, and that's important. Right. Was it was it with you guys that we talked about someone that was playing like a PlayStation uh, during one of their sessions? That's right. What was it? it was Minecraft? Yeah, yeah, it was Minecraft. And someone discussed what, what was the story? Well, it was someone saying because the kid had uh, I think it was a kid with ADHD or some sort of impulsive difficulties and i don't play minecraft so someone needs to help me out with this but uh you can blow stuff up in minecraft and so uh they were working on patience and how you can't immediately run into things so that your character can live and oh a kid was able to learn a valuable lesson on how they need to think and wait before taking action because their guy died yeah for sure (laughs) nothing on that one yeah it just it it just resonates with me that sometimes you can't speak about things uh, directly, but if you can speak about them through the client's interest, it can go a long way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know that I, I definitely work on my anger management skills when I play Grand Theft Auto. That, that's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that actually that absolutely happens, you know? It, it helps. Well, it helps you not steal cars and beat up prostitutes in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Okay. Yeah. So um, any positive uh, final comments for our parents? Uh, for me, it's everything's going to be okay as long as you ask for help. Yeah, nothing, nothing's final, right? Everything can be worked on and be improved. Yeah. yeah. 
things get better? Yeah, I think patience is key and, you know, it's a process and it will be okay. Perfect. All right. So this is episode 10. Thank you all for being here. And you can find episode 10, Children's Mental Health, of the Stigmatized on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Ryan, Mercedes, Jason, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you.